Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the first Quillette podcast of 2021. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, delighted to be back with another year of podcast coverage of science, higher education, culture, and all the other subjects we cover at Quillette. If you're a listener but not yet a reader, please drop by at Quillette.com. In fact, today's guest, University of New Mexico social psychologist Tanya Reynolds, is one of the authors who made a big splash at Quillette in 2020 with her November 23rd article titled, Retracting a Controversial Paper Won't Help Female Scientists. In that piece, Professor Reynolds described an ongoing controversy at the journal Nature Communications, which had just published a peer-reviewed article by a team of authors led by Bedur Al-Shebli, an assistant professor of computational social science at New York University in Abu Dhabi. In her Nature Communications article, Professor Al-Shebli and her co-authors had examined a database of more than 200 million scientific articles that had been co-authored by junior and senior academics. By comparing the number of citations each of those articles received, Professor Al-Shebli sought to determine the effect of mentorship on academics, with a particular focus on the question of whether the practice of pairing junior female academics with senior female academics paid career dividends. Controversially, Professor Al-Shebli and her co-authors reported data that supported the opposite result. That is, her data suggested that female academics could, in average statistical terms, suffer a penalty for pursuing female-female mentorship arrangements as compared to male mentorships. As one might expect, these results stirred opposition among critics, some of whom took to Twitter and focused on Professor Al-Shebli's methods, while also voicing displeasure with what they described as the allegedly harmful effects. After all, many academics have invested a lot of time and resources in the idea of female-female mentorship relationships, and predictably, many took umbrage at the suggestion that these efforts aren't as useful as many imagine. In December, the editors of Nature Communications took the extraordinary step of retracting the Al Shebli article altogether, despite the fact that the objections that had been cited largely consisted of the same methodological concerns that had already been identified and addressed during the formal peer review process. With me to discuss all of this is Professor Reynolds, who foreshadowed much of these developments with her Quillette article two months ago. And as listeners will hear, we do go beyond a direct discussion of the Nature Communications controversy and talk more generally about the challenges that female-female mentorship relationships might face. It's a discussion Professor Reynolds is well-suited for, given that her specialty is intrasexual competition and cooperation. Professor Reynolds spoke to me this week over Skype from Tallahassee, Florida. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Who is... Bedur Al-Shebli. She's a newly hired assistant professor of computational social science at NYU Abu Dhabi, and she has published work on meta-science, looking at patterns 
in scientific articles. So the paper that we're talking about today is looking at the pattern of collaboration and how that contributes to academic articles impact in terms of their how many citations they receive. And some of her other work has also looked at that topic. A previous paper, the one that I'm thinking of is published in 2018 in Nature Communications. And in that paper, Bedore and her colleagues found that the ethnic diversity of authors enhanced the likelihood that papers would have a higher impact or be cited more frequently. In the article we're focusing on today, which was published in Nature Communications, she was looking at the sex of the authors, male versus female. What is she taking as a proxy for either ethnic background or sex? Is, is she looking at names? Yeah, I believe the 2018 paper used names as well. But I know for certain that in the 2020 paper looking at gender, they did use names. They use an algorithm that is able to classify gender based on names, it can accurately classify names with 90% confidence. Um, and so this is a very reliable measure compared to many other constructs or scales often used in social science. So basically, her work looks at meta science, looking at how the breakdown of authors contributes to the success of their papers. And I guess one interesting background detail here for people who aren't scientists, people who are scientists, I guess, take this for granted. There is this large and extremely well curated data set of scientific papers out there. I think numbers in the millions. And it sounds like people keep very close track of where they were published, how many times they were cited, how many authors are on these papers. Is this the sort of data, for instance, that tenure depends on? Exactly. So if you are an academic, your success is largely dependent upon how many papers you publish and the impact of those papers, which is often operationalized as the prestige of the journal, as well as how many people cite your papers. So it's very consequential for academics. And you're correct, the data set that they used consisted of over 200 million papers by over 200 million scientists. So one strength of this study was that it was very well powered to detect effects. There's obviously a statistical side to this. You're talking about the data set, but there's also this cultural background here. And the cultural background, of course, is this idea that for years now, we have encouraged the idea of senior females in every field mentoring younger females. There's this idea that if you share some kind of background trait with somebody, it's going to make you a more effective mentor and it's going to increase the success, statistically speaking, of the person who is being mentored. Would you say that that was the background presumption going into this research? I believe so. And the authors even mention that specifically in their general discussion where they say our well-intended diversity policies encourage female-female mentorship. Here, let me quote them directly. Our gender-related findings suggest that current diversity policies promoting female-female mentorships, as well-intended as they may be, could hinder the careers of women who remain in academia in unexpected ways. 
the authors are referring to this assumption that being matched with a same gender mentor is going to be beneficial. And indeed, there are data to support that. So there are some data to suggest that having a female mentor can encourage women to persist in academia. But these findings, the current findings, suggest that these mentorships pairings do not result in the same level of citations. We can get into the criticisms later, but the idea here was that citations, the number of times your work is cited, is taken as a proxy for success. And at the same time, in order to get a statistical proxy for mentorship, they're looking at co-authorship of papers. And I guess I know this from my brief time in in the sciences, where I published one or two papers, and as was typically the case, there was a, a senior researcher in my department. He happened to be my thesis advisor. His name was on my paper. He was my mentor. Is that the kind of relationship that was taken as a statistical proxy for mentorship more generally? Right. So the authors treated co-authorship on papers, but specifically with a co-author who is more senior in their career in terms of tenure in the discipline from a similar institution. So they needed to be of a similar affiliation and within the United States. So they treated this as a proxy for informal mentorship. And so this is one of the sources of the critiques People are upset that we cannot make assumptions about the degree of mentorship simply from the presence of a co-author. I do see the merits of this critique because there are plenty of cases where people will throw a senior co-author onto a paper because they had access to the data. So just because there is a senior academic on your paper does not necessarily mean they are your mentor. As I understand it, in order to at least make a stab at checking the validity of this presumption, they looked at a handful of relationships, and I think they sent out questionnaires, is that right, to, to see if they could sustain the idea of co-authorship as a proxy for mentorship. Is, is that right? And, and what was the nature of that questionnaire? They sent a survey out to 2,000 of the junior scientists or the junior co-authors, in their data set. And from that, so 167 responded, which is a low response rate. And it could mean that the results do not generalize to the broader sample. However, from those responses, what they found was that 95% of those junior co-authors agreed they'd received some guidance from the senior co-author on at least one of the skills listed in the survey. So the survey asked about various skills related to the paper, and then they found that 80% reported that they had received some type of career support. So this could be in the form of a letter of recommendation, grant writing advice, career planning advice from the senior co-author. So these responses, although you know it was a limited response rate, do support that there was mentorship provided by the senior co-authors, at least from these 167 respondents. So it sounds like, as with a lot of research, there are some debatable correlations or statistical proxies which is why these things are subject to peer review. And when this paper did go to peer review, what was the result? 
their paper was reviewed by four independent scholars with expertise in the topics covered, and they thoroughly reviewed the paper and requested revisions and ultimately supported the paper's publication in the journal. But indeed, one of the issues that they did raise was whether the author's operationalization of informal mentorship was appropriate, which is why the authors created this survey to provide some validity to their operationalization of informal mentorship in terms of using co-authorship with a senior scholar. And so ultimately, this paper was published. I say all this by way of background because when people did raise objections, it's not as if these objections were things that the peer review panel hadn't thought of. It sounds like these are things that had, in fact, been looked at up front. Tell me a little bit about how this paper was received. And I think it was in November 2020. Shortly thereafter, another female academic Dr. Leslie Vashal wrote an open letter to the editors requesting the paper's retraction, calling it deeply methodologically flawed. She found it disconcerting that the journal was propagating a narrative that if you have a female mentor, your scientific career may suffer. And so from this, this call for retraction, there is the mention of deep methodological issues, but then also you can tell there's also this concern about harm, the message that's being conveyed by the article. And this concern seemed to be what was echoed by the other Twitter commentators, but a lot of them referenced the methods as being flawed. So I looked into the reviews which are publicly accessible. And through the reviews, you can see both what the reviewers requested and how the authors addressed those concerns. And there were some primary critiques, one centered around the data set that they used. There were issues with name disambiguation, such that they were worried that they weren't classifying gender accurately. So the authors downloaded the newest version of the software reanalyzed all of their data and then provided the updated results. The reviewers also were concerned about the author's lack of attention to societal forces that might be contributing to these patterns. And so Bidur and her colleagues included specifically in the general discussion mention of these. For example, they said, Historically, male scientists had enjoyed more privileges and access to resources than their female counterparts, and thus were able to provide more support to their protégés. So they mentioned that although the specific mechanisms behind the findings are yet to be uncovered, potentially these historical forces or disparate access to resources in terms of gender could be contributing to the pattern. And now, a commercial message for those of you looking to add Bitcoin to your investment portfolio or retirement account. And I realize that this is a confusing subject. I remember the first time I got Bitcoin, I walked into a convenience store that had the Bitcoin logo, went up to a kind of reverse ATM, fed in some bills, and received, in return, a long series of numbers and letters. Then I spent an hour trying to figure out how to feed those numbers and letters into a Bitcoin wallet on my phone. I wanted to invest in cryptocurrencies, but surely there had to be a better way. And that's what brings me to BitTrust IRA, a seamless, secure, and easy way to add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. 
BitTrust IRA stores your private keys with military-grade encryption. They have a 24-7 trading platform with no minimum investment and unlimited trades. They also offer what I'm told are the lowest trading fees in the industry. Many crypto assets have been great performers this year, and some analysts will tell you they're a great way to start building intergenerational wealth. For those looking to invest, skip the convenience store and go to bittrustira.com slash quillette to learn more. For a limited time, BitTrust IRA is waiving the sign-up fee for Quillette podcast listeners, a $50 value. Go to bittrustira.com slash quillette, B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. And now, back to our podcast. I don't think anyone is denying that there's sexism in some areas of science. I was a scientist myself for few years and I I witnessed it. But it sounds like in this paper, the authors weren't making an argument that there's no sexism in science. They were simply drawing attention to a particular kind of statistical correlation. By the way, that statistical correlation that they noted isn't necessarily inconsistent with the idea that there is sexism in science. Did the authors of the original Nature paper have a theory about sexism in science? They acknowledge that the mechanism behind their patterns is yet to be known. They do provide speculations about the cause. They pointed to these historical forces. But to be fair to the critics, I do think that the authors went a little bit beyond what their data allowed when they mentioned policy implications. So, for example, they said, Our gender-related findings suggest that current diversity policies promoting female-female mentorships as well intended as they may be, could hinder the careers of women who remain in academia in unexpected ways. Female scientists, in fact, may benefit from opposite gender mentorships in terms of their publication potential and impact throughout their post-mentorship careers. Policymakers should thus revisit first and second order consequences of diversity policies while focusing not only on retaining women in science, but also on maximizing their long-term scientific impact. And I believe it's these implications that got them in the most trouble. So they easily could have interpreted their findings as, well, one potential solution is to look into bias in citation. So why is it that female scientists aren't being cited at the same rate as male scientists? I think if they had gone in that direction, they would have avoided a lot of this trouble. Now, to be fair to them, they do use cautious language. So they say could hinder the careers of women or female scientists may benefit from opposite gender mentorship. So I I do think that they were relatively cautious, but with policy implications as consequential as these, it's very important to be circumspect in what implications follow from their findings. I guess my question is, what's more important, providing data to younger scientists that might help guide their career choices or being on side with ideology? I'm thinking in the case of of a younger scientist who might have a choice about what kind of mentorship to get, maybe mentorship from a woman because she's been told that, well, you should look for mentorship from a woman, or maybe mentorship from a man because maybe his research is closer to her own, or I guess there's all kinds of reasons that could go here. Even if the data being reported here is caused 100% by sexism, a young scientist should know about that. No, I totally agree. If these patterns 
are real, and the study was well-powered to detect effects, then female scientists deserve to know that. So if they want to enhance their career, and if it is the case that for whatever reason, either due to sexism or the topics chosen by female versus male mentors or by networking, whatever the mechanism, we don't know what the mechanism is. But if female scientists' careers are benefited when they work with, say, female and male advisors, then they deserve to know that. If you want to promote the careers of female scientists and help them, then what better way than allowing them to make informed decisions as to what choices will be beneficial or could be beneficial? Now, if it is the case also that these patterns are real, and if it's due to discrimination or network effects, or maybe it's the case that, for example, female scientists don't get the same opportunities to present their papers at conferences, whatever is underlying these patterns, the only way that we can address them, either through interventions or policy, is by acknowledging that they exist. I'm looking at the letter from Leslie Vauchal. It's on letterhead from the Rockefeller University. She identifies herself as an an investigator, Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And it reads, and I'm going to quote here, the general consensus among hundreds of colleagues who have read and commented on this paper in large group email threads and on Twitter is that it is deeply methodologically flawed and with the potential to inflict serious harm on the global scientific community. I find it ironic that while communicating concerns about the data set and the statistical inferences contained in this paper, Ms. Vashal is citing email and Twitter threads. And it's not as if important information cannot be communicated via email and social media. But there's also a self-selection bias. The sort of people who are in these email threads and on social media, often it's people who, on one side or another, are the most ideologically committed to certain factions within the policy community. Do you find it odd that science is now being critiqued? And as we'll go on to discuss, this paper has been retracted on the basis of evidence collected from social media? Oh, yeah, it is deeply problematic. This paper was reviewed by four scholars with relevant expertise, and they approved of the publication of this manuscript. There is a reason that we have peer review to analyze the value and credibility of papers. So we don't rely on a popularity contest or a public vote. Ms. Vashel was admirably blunt here. She says, it is your ethical duty to retract this paper. Is Ms. Vashel basically saying times have changed and Twitter has spoken? It seems so. She's basing it off of people's response and their detection of harm about the potential implications. Is part of this self-interest, you have a lot of women, and maybe Leslie Vaschel is one of them, who perhaps have become part of very well-intentioned and reasonable-sounding programs whereby women are paired up with women for mentorship. Now someone is coming along and saying, hey, maybe this doesn't work so well. How much of the pushback against this paper was people saying, (laughs) we've been doing this for a bunch of years now, it feels like it's working, stop telling us what to do? I think people are worried about the implication that perhaps this female-female mentorship style isn't as 
successful as we are proclaiming. But I think one thing to keep in mind is that citation rate is one metric of success. So it is quite possible that a female-female scientific team is productive for other reasons, perhaps increased empathy, relatability, or that they select topics that might be overlooked by male scientists. You get into this in your article. You talk about how, in general, it's kind of a stereotype, I feel weird talking about it, but you talked about it, so I'm going to talk about it, that, that men are interested in things, to our rough generalization, whereas, statistically speaking, women are more interested in people. And so maybe some of the statistical variation you're seeing is actually layered over this underlying interest thing, where if you get two women together, they might be interested in a research area that doesn't get as much citations, but is more of interest to them. Whereas for men, they're looking at maybe some of the stuff that is about things, maybe it gets more citations from men because science is sexist, that sort of thing. And I think it could be relevant here. So there's a large body of evidence finding consistent and robust sex differences in interest in people versus things. So this is one of the larger sex differences in terms of psychological sex differences. And the finding here is that women tend to show a stronger interest on average in topics related to people and their experiences, whereas men tend to show a stronger interest on average in objects and their mechanisms. And so you find these patterns not only in interests, but they're also paralleled in the sex ratios of the scientists studying those topics. So, for example, men are overrepresented in thing-related disciplines, such as computer science and physics. I love those things. <laughs> Whereas women are um, overrepresented in people-related disciplines, such as nursing and midwifery. So these patterns, not only in the scientists studying these fields, but also the papers that they author. So you find similar patterns such that women are more likely to author papers in people-related fields and men are more often the authors of papers in thing-related fields. These parallel the sex differences you find in interests. And so it is quite possible that the pattern of citations results from the topic of study rather than the scientist per se. So if male and female academics choose slightly different topics on average, then there could be disparate citation rates resulting from the topic. Al Shelby and her colleagues, they did control for discipline, but even within a discipline, there are differences in topics. So one of the fields that they looked at was psychology. And so you can think within psychology, that's quite broad. That incorporates cognitive psychology and the mechanisms, but it also incorporates more subjective experiences of individuals. So these might yield different citation rates. And if men and women are slightly more or less inclined to choose those topics, then the difference in citation rates might result from the topic. And so if that is the case, that if, if these patterns are just resulting from the topics people are freely choosing, well, then that actually isn't all that problematic. It could be a good thing that we're supporting men and women's autonomy to choose the topics that most interest them. Now, it's still also possible, even if there are gender differences in topics, those could result from discrimination or gender stereotypes. Maybe women are encouraged to study certain topics over others. And if so, maybe we could address that by examining further these mechanisms we can better understand how best to proceed. 
This episode of the Quillette Podcast is brought to you by Skillshare, the online learning community that offers you the chance to learn new skills in a more structured and supportive way than you can get from just watching how-to videos on YouTube. None of us really know what 2021 will bring, but if you want to make the most of it, whatever it brings, consider joining up at Skillshare to develop your talent, learn new skills, and make yourself more marketable. If you surf the Skillshare site, you'll find that a lot of the most popular topics involve exploring your creative side, such as graphic design, logos and branding, photography, illustration, and creative writing. But you'll also find a lot of stuff that's more off the beaten path. For instance, I've spent a lot of time on Skillshare trying to get better at chess, and I love the fact that all of the material is action-oriented. There's always a project or a goal, and you're part of a larger group of other Skillshare members supporting you as you learn the material. Explore your creative side at Skillshare.com slash Quillette. That's Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. Skillshare.com slash Quillette and get a free trial of Skillshare's premium membership. Thank you to Skillshare for supporting our podcast. And now back to our show. And this gets us into some tricky territory. I think maybe you're familiar with the Scandinavian research that shows that in societies that have the greatest amount of equality between men and women, those are often the societies where you now see the biggest differentials in terms of the number of hours worked or the sort of professions people choose because as people get more freedom professionally, they often will exercise that freedom in ways that accentuate some of the existing differences between men and women because of the life choices they make. It also gets us into some other thorny territory, which you covered in your article, which is about the relationship between senior and junior women within organizations. And this isn't just within scientific organizations. I I was a lawyer briefly, and (laughs) I was a lot of things briefly. And I, I know that sometimes younger female lawyers would sometimes complain about older female lawyers who they felt at least were being harder on them. One theory I had from the younger women was that some of these older women faced a lot of really terrible sexism when they first entered the profession decades ago. And they hold themselves to an extremely high and rigorous standard, and they fought hard to get where they were. And maybe as a result of that, that left some scars on them, and it maybe changes the way they deal with younger subordinates. I don't know if this has anything to do with the so-called queen bee syndrome. This is a term you mentioned in your article. Is this just an anecdotal phenomenon I'm describing, or is there data behind this? You're correct. There are data to support the presence and existence of the queen bee syndrome, which is basically this pattern where occasionally higher status women sometimes fail to support junior women. And so this has been documented in business. So for example, there are findings where female subordinates are less satisfied with their jobs when they report to a female versus male boss. They perceive their female leaders as less competent. They perceive their female leaders as providing less support than their male leaders. And there is one study suggesting that female subordinates earn less when they make a transfer to a very successful female boss compared to if they made a transfer to a very successful male boss. And so this has been documented in organizational contexts, but it has also been documented in academic contexts. So 
Two studies have found that senior female academics evaluated junior female academics as less committed to their careers compared to junior male academics. But what's interesting is they didn't find this gender bias in the perceptions of male senior academics. So it was only the female senior academics that were perceiving the female junior academics as less committed. There's another study of over 50 universities finding that female senior faculty were less likely to co-author papers with same-sex junior faculty compared to male senior faculty. So these patterns aren't unique to the business world. They also are present and have been documented in academia. And so it's possible that this female-female dynamic is playing out in Al Shelby's paper. Because one thing that a lot of the critics fail to acknowledge is that there was also a penalty for female senior authors for co-authoring a paper with a junior female author. And so the penalty worked in both directions. So it suggests there was something about the female junior and female senior pairing that led to the lower citation rates. So I'm I'm an evolutionary psychologist, so I tend to think about things from an evolutionary perspective and how the journey of our ancestors might help us make sense of modern phenomena. And so the fact that it was among female-female pairs across this status demarcation, I thought it might have something to do with the style of affiliation that many of our female ancestors used to cooperate throughout human history. So many social groups across human history were patrilocal, meaning that women left their own families upon marriage to reside with their husbands. And so what that meant is a lot of our female ancestors were surrounded by individuals with whom they were not related. So then this raises the question of, okay, well, if they weren't related to these nearby women, how did they form cooperative bonds with them? Well, Dave Geary has theorized that if they didn't have any shared genetic interests in one another, perhaps these unrelated female ancestors upheld their cooperative relationships using reciprocal altruism. So basically benefits and favors are exchanged in a tit for tat manner. And if it is the case that our female ancestors relied on reciprocal exchanges to uphold their cooperative bonds, well, then that might leave remnants in today's modern women's psychologies. And so, indeed, you find that there are sex differences and preferences that mirror what you would expect if our female ancestors were using these types of bonds. So for example, reciprocal exchanges are easier to track in a dyad, so two individuals. And indeed what you find that compared to men, women tend to prefer more dyadic relationships compared to larger groups, which would make sense because a large group makes it hard to track benefits. But sorry, but I'm, I'm being ignorant here, but wouldn't this altruism and these one-on-one dyadic relationships wouldn't that improve the quality of mentorship between between women? Right. That's a great point. So you would predict that in a dyadic interaction, that should buttress women's interactions. And that's plausibly the case. But the other issue with reciprocal altruism is that it's easier to maintain when both parties have similar status or power or resources 
Because without that, so if the parties diverge too much in terms of resources or power, then the bond basically is compromised. It devolves into parasitism, where one party is kind of extracting resources from the other, or exploitation, where one party is using the other for their own gain. Game theoretic models support this, that in dyadic mutually beneficial bonds, the mutualism or the capacity for both parties to benefit is corroded by disparities in power. I guess it also accords with what I understand about the relationship between powerful and less powerful women from every single Salman Rushdie novel, which always portrays the formation of status hierarchies within extended families in these (laughs) very memorable ways. People sometimes forget that status hierarchies exist within female groups, just like they exist within male groups. Is there a sort of sentimentalism around our discussions of mentorship and just relationships more generally among women, whereby maybe it's just imagined that the kind of frictions and competitions and resentments that exist within male groups don't exist within women? Or do we have a sentimental approach to the way we talk about female relationships? I think part of those sentiments are accurate, but part are a bit misguided. So it is the case that Women very highly prioritize their relationships and they tend to, when they form friendships, they tend to be more intimate and share more personal details. But if you actually look at the pattern, of, at least of friendships, female friendships are actually more likely to dissolve than our male friendships. And even if you look at same-sex roommates, female roommates are more likely to have problems and request transfers from their universities compared to male roommates, at least in like a college dorm setting. The data suggests that there is something corroding female-female relationships, such that when female-female relationships work, they are very intimate and they share a lot of personal details, but they're also quite vulnerable to fracture. And so when we look into the data, it doesn't quite support our romantic notion about female-female relationships. But I believe that we shouldn't be troubled by these. The only way that we can promote female-female relationships is by understanding what factors corrode them so that we can address them. So let me bring this conversation back. And I apologize. I've been going very far afield with my questions. And (laughs) to some extent, I've been treating this interview as a kind of (laughs) ask a female evolutionary biologist. No, I like it. So thank you for illuminating all this. But let's get back a little to the Nature Communications paper, which it was controversial when it was published in November. And then even after the original peer review, there was this other review bringing in new reviewers. And then in late December, the thing just was retracted outright. Is this something you expected? And what was the what was the reason given for the retraction? It wasn't what I expected because retractions are usually saved for cases where there is data fraud or an error in the coding such that the results are no longer the case. If you read the retraction editorial, they claim that it would be problematic to retract a paper just because they found the the findings upsetting. And so they cite the issues with the operationalization of terms and the interpretation of findings to kind of justify the retraction. But then they go on to say that 
they've developed additional internal guidelines to ensure that papers like these are considered from the perspective of groups concerned by the findings. So I'm going to stop right there. That's that's really creepy. They say that this will help us ensure that the review process takes into account the dimension of potential harm. But judgments about harm are subjective. And so what I fear from this is that this could lead to selective application of rigor, which will distort our empirical landscape. So if we hold studies to different standards based on their potential implications, this will lead to a lopsided depiction of reality. And now a message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, the online counseling service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive. At betterhelp.com, you'll connect with your professional licensed therapist in a safe, private, online environment using secure video, phone, online chat, or text. Anything you share is, of course, strictly confidential. While BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in under 24 hours. When self-help methods aren't enough and you seek professional counseling, BetterHelp can connect you to a network of thousands of licensed therapists. And you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in sleep, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. So many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 U.S. states. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. There's no awkward waiting room, and you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. Financial aid is available in some cases. Join over 1 million others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month service with the discount code Quillette. Just go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. That word harm is really alarming because, as you and I both know, that word is used in a really loose way now. You know, I happen to be a man and men commit more crimes than women. Is publishing information about that massive statistical disparity, is that causing me harm? It deeply concerns me. It is not our job to anticipate or predict how data could be used. Our job is to present the most rigorous data we can. And yes, we should be cautious about our interpretations, but we can't know the future use of data. And data are not inherently beneficial or harmful. They're just data. So for example, let's say you find that alcoholism is heritable or there's a genetic component to it and you decide to consult a group of recovering alcoholics or current alcoholics and they deem these findings harmful. Perhaps they're worried that it could lead to stigma, but they can't know the future. They don't know, for example, those findings, those same findings that could lead to stigma could lead to compassion. Or more research about how to break the, the germline connection. Exactly. Or we might be better able to target interventions. Or if we do further develop CRISPR, we might actually be able to identify those genes and alter them. I don't know if we'll ever be there. <laughs> I warned you before the show that not everyone listening is a scientist. And of course, CRISPR is a gene editing technology. But I just wanted to make sure people knew you weren't talking about a breakfast cereal or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. But we can't anticipate the future use of data. Or even if, for example, I mean, 
if you want to advocate for policy or design an intervention, you have to be able to point to evidence about the problem. But if every time we scientifically demonstrate a problem, someone deems that as harmful, well, then that's not doing anyone any good. Tanya Reynolds is an assistant professor in psychology at the University of New Mexico. Her article in Quillette, published in November, is called Retracting a Controversial Paper Won't Help Female Scientists. Thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Thank you for having me. It was fun. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.